thing, I think, means that we've done a lot of living. But it might also mean that um, you guys put in a lot of effort and were courageous and strong today. So thank you for your work. You made it through the first day. And there will be numerous other days of meditation practice. In the Tibetan tradition, the word for meditation is gom, which is, uh, really means getting used to it. And I think even those of you who've done long retreats before know, as I do, that the first days are still getting used to it. And it's getting used to the process of the retreat and to where oneself is in a particular time and space and with the particular group and what's happening in one's life and bringing that into the practice is always kind of like um, putting the water into flour and getting the dough to sort of work for a cooking metaphor till it starts to be sort of flexible and feel workable. Um, So this is a talk laying out a little bit of what the Buddha's instructions were about uh, paying attention to the body. He had a big array of practices in this one pivotal teaching called the Sutta on the Four Ways of Establishing Mindfulness, or has various translations, but the body section is the longest one and has the most going on in it because, um, well, because, because it's a huge subject. The first thing the Buddha did was talk a lot about the quality of awareness, and then he's saying, like, paying attention to the body is the first thing. But I'm going to tell you a little story. Like, in my one of my past lives, I was a sort of mountaineering person. I used to go on long backcountry trips and expeditions and write stories, and uh, I walked from the coast of the Andes into the jungle all over the different cordilleras, three, three different cordilleras, and it was like a crossing the horizon every day. Like what was the horizon one day was ahead, it was the horizon behind the next day, and there was always this new horizon, and we'd get to it by the evening, which feels a little bit like the retreat. And I loved that. I loved being out in the places that were hard to get to, and lying on warm rocks and feeling like sometimes the shape of the rock was more comfortable than any amazing expensive chair. Like you could just find where to put the little parts of your body so that it fit the rock and was warm and like a lizard was really fun. But the first time I had gone on this kind of expedition, it was a six week expedition in 1977, just before my first meditation retreat. And I was filled with this romance of heading for the hills kind of thing. And the first thing I learned was it was incredibly difficult and painful. And it was a lot of like trudging, you know, with a backpack on. And I remember my backpack, there wasn't so much freeze dried food in it. And I used to have to like put it on the ground and sort of get underneath it like this. And sometimes it would be so heavy that my face would go down to the ground like this. And then I had to sort of get up by this painstaking process and start sort of putting one foot in front of the other while the men would run away and by the time I'd get to, I'd see them disappearing in the distance and then they would, I'd arrive and they would say, ah, oh, well, we've just had such a nice rest. Here you are. And then they'd leave again and I'd be like, ah. But the issue was sort of feeling like I was um, not having the experience I was supposed to be having, like I was supposed to be loving it and I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like the hardship and 
my mind like I could never remember past the th first three words of whatever idiotic song was going in through my head and trying to distract myself and stuff. And immediately after this first expedition, I went to a meditation retreat and I learned this first initial thing that I didn't have to hate what was going on. It could be hard, but hating it made it so much worse. And I wished that I had known it in the previous six weeks, but I knew it through the process of the retreat. And it's been really helpful um, through my life to understand how to work with that kind of experience that things can be hard and I don't have to hate them and things can be beautiful and I don't have to sort of hoard them either and things can be neutral and I don't have to be distracted from them. This talking about our responses to the different ways that things feel is actually a teaching that's a little bit farther along than the body teaching but you encounter it in the body of course like things are pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Probably each person here can at least find an unpleasant sensation somewhere uh, in your own body sphere. But I want to come closer into just the experiential qualities of the body in the beginning, like Anushka gave instructions this morning about really learning to distinguish between the sensation and the thinking process. And I wonder if you all have kind of been able to do that sometimes, have you? Like the sensation and your opinion of it, or the wonderful or terrible future that you're going to have based on the sensation or things like that. Well, that's a really, really important teaching um, and can be very liberating. So I want everyone to keep it, in, keep it in your heart. So even like right now, if we come to our present moment experience, there's almost like a sense of the part of us that is this sort of complicated little jangly part that's always trying to control everything and make everything work out and sort of where we live much of the time, like um, filled with intentions and plans and judgments and opinions and stories. And then a little bit out beyond that space, there's kind of life or nature or something that's kind of happening on its own. And some of that is actually within one's own body. Like, let's say I have a little bit of a headache here, but my thigh is perfectly fine. And the, my kidney area is kind of at peace and my earlobes are doing great, I have to say. But it's so easy to get kind of compressed into either the thinking and wishing process or into whatever's the most kind of um, gripping. So just think about or consider what it might be to widen out to, you know, the plants in the room that are just kind of growing and are being watered nicely and the ceiling fans, lazy turn and stuff like that. These are all actually embodied experiences in a way as the plants have a kind of a body and maybe the backs of your hands are not even hurting. I don't know. Um, just feeling into and being able to have a kind of synchronization of our attention to that which is happening on its own, that which is not being controlled by us, that which is sort of the aliveness of nature, as Anushka has been suggesting. So this sense of coming down and letting the body sensations 
sort of almost flood into our consciousness, um, taking us out of our head where we're habitually living in the thoughts and feelings and stories. Not that that's a wrong thing, just that we're not including the body and not including the body has some bad consequences for us also. If we're just living in our heads, it's not actually healthy or not optimally healthy, let's say. The poet Jack Kerouac said, the closer you get to real matter, rock, fire, air, and wood, the more spiritual the world is. And that's sort of the direction that this form of spirituality takes with the body also. That the word spiritual in our culture has tended to mean that it's going to, our wonderful perfection is going to happen at some other time, like after we're dead. And we're going to get there after we've gotten rid of our body. And I think those cultural assumptions may be running deep underneath for some of us. Like some of us may have uh, been brought up in very different cultures. So it may not be exactly the same for, there's a probably real diverse quality in the room around that. However, the human uh, propensity to live in our ideas I think crosses all cultures is universal and in a way that's partly what the Buddha has been pointing to is a little bit below the level of the particular and have us look a little bit more at the universal like not my body but a body or this body like one of the instructions the Buddha gives is to just say there's a body about oneself so there's a body here it's very simple it's very kind of plain it's not going into a big construction about what kind it is or how old it is and what's wrong or right with it or how does it compare to other bodies or bodies on television. Um, always a losing proposition, I would say, that way. I had used to have an old Burmese lady friend who was a meditator and she said that uh, she used to watch dancing shows on television and she said that it was like hell. She said, there's a, version, there's a place in hell where everyone has to be laughing all the time and smiling and they have to be perfect. What a horrible place. <laughs> she would rather be in, in this place, in this body. So as we start to sink up into this ability to be present and embodied in a natural and simple way, it's not necessary to do sort of more than that. In the practice, it's not necessary to arrive at a destination. It's not necessary to build anything out of it um, when you can simply be with the breath. In part, what we're learning from the body is that the body isn't kind of making more things happen. It's not its own sort of construction project like the mind is. The mind always seems to want like to, for something more to be happening just with the breath or just walking. I wonder if anyone today also had the thought like, why am I doing this? What's this all about? That's the mind actually wondering, like, is there more to life than just the body sensations kind of thing? Because it's used to uh, getting itself excited about stuff and doing lots of different things. Like, thank you for the um, non-texting today. We had that unplugged day, very successful here. Um, I feel like we should do this as a fundraiser or something, like <laughs> the non-texting that happened. Thanks to everyone who turned in their phone. Just imagine for most of us how many emails and text messages and phone calls you would have had today if you hadn't been on retreat. Isn't it kind of nice not to have to that, do that? 
So as we've begun the retreat, the openness and receptivity of mindfulness is allowing us to touch into the level of simplicity of our body and kind of live in the body sensations a little bit more. But I think a lot of our mind is not quite yet ready to, is not as used to it to really want to be at home or make it our ground quite as much as it will happen over the retreats getting deeper. But this feeling of just being able to rest with the sensations that come and go on their own, like being embodied by the sensations that are already happening and being breathed and maybe even sort of allowing your mind to just move around a little bit on its own without feeling like you have to quite do so much to control where it goes or what it sees or how it feels, just to sort of have a trust that whatever's coming up we can handle and to keep making that simple decision to let the body experience be known moment after moment after moment. It's actually a very deep aspect of the practice, this simple thing that um, it never leaves us in terms of being a practitioner. It's so kind of um, humble that we just keep making this one kind of gesture, like to open up and to connect with what's really happening and to come back and to stay with it. And sometimes to see like, how am I paying attention? Is my attention kind? Is it curious? Um, I'm not squashing my breath or something. Am I gripping it or am I evaluating it? No, it's just like this simple openness that you keep giving again and again and again. It's very profound and a window into sort of a deeper truth that our regular mind doesn't actually understand that much about life. It just pretends it does. And it wants to kind of have a formula and an understanding of what's going on. And what's going on is actually a lot bigger than our mind. And what's going on holds us in a way. And we're part of it. Um, We may not like all of it, but we may not have a choice about it either. It's like life is moving through us and we're connected in so many ways that we're not really aware of or able to process. So this kind of exploration we're doing non-conceptually, not only is it kind of mysterious, but we're not um, all that used to it. It's a little bit like going into a room blindfolded or something because of it's a non-verbal thing that we're doing using our attention in this way. Jean Ann and I were having a conversation earlier um, about how when we were younger and we were in college, we felt like the, we were told that you should use your thinking brain to solve all your problems kind of thing. And by being smart and like studying art and history and spirituality and psychology through your head, somehow there were parts of our life that remained completely problematic and obscure still, like the problems that your thinking cannot solve remain. And you can't think your way through everything. But with, let's say, thinking is a very important part of things. Like, I don't want to put it down. Like, it's everything in this room was created in a way by human thought, like ideas and stuff, like in a way to be helpful or serve us, like a window so we can see. And there didn't used to be glass, you know. So it's not a bad thing that we have a mind that can plan and foresee. But for certain things, that part of our mind is helpful only to a limited degree. Like you guys can understand me now, like I'm trying to explain something. So you can take it in and say like, well, there's also something that where the thinking mind needs to let go. And there, but there actually is something to hold us at that place, which is the physical experience of being embodied. 
So the sixth Dalai Lama said, I know the soft body of my lover, but I also cannot fathom her depths. And sort of a sexy way of talking about the mysteriousness of life. But it's also true about people that our thinking mind sort of tries to get an idea of someone and then it kind of makes an image and kind of snaps it into place and afterwards you'll think about that person and you have an image of them and we don't always remember like the fullness of the dimension and mystery of each other even because of the way our mind sort of just forms an idea and then lives in the idea of itself and we lose contact with people like I don't know I've been married for 10 years now I've been with this person for longer than that and sometimes I feel like he's the person I ignore the most you know like I just think that it's him doing his thing well he always gets up at 10:30, so that's him getting up at 10:30. there it is again like why should I think about it anew and part of that is comforting that I sort of live in this known world but sometimes anyone who's been in a long relationship knows that this idea that the other person is a certain way all the time is absolutely destructive of any real relationship. It's just dead, you know, and pigeonholing and all of that. It's not, it's unkind. It's that we're not really present at that time. I don't want to go down that road too far. But um, so the Buddha's introduction to this awareness practice was first that he spoke a lot about the quality of our attention, the quality of mindfulness itself this particular way that we can respond to what's happening. It's one of many ways that we could respond. It's actually, I would say, it's uh, one of the most dignified and caring ways that we can be with our experience. That's part of the definition that, you know, Anushka has been saying too today, like we notice wanting to pee with curiosity. We see what does it actually feel like? How do I know I want to go to the bathroom? What is, what's that sensation like? Rather than feeling the sensation and then running away like a robot to the bathroom. Um, now, we were saying that you do take care of your needs. Like, you don't just sit here until something terrible happens, you know, that you wouldn't want to happen. Like, you don't put yourself through torture, but there can be a little bit of letting the stimulus stay there for a little while while you investigate the experience and your relationship to it. So the mindfulness actually replaces the reactivity, you see what I'm saying? So the mindfulness is a response that we put it, we have to put some energy into generating it again and again, like through this process of coming back and stuff. But what it does is it sort of creates a space in which we have a freedom of choice or we can see more deeply also. We can see the nature of sensation, which is a little bit of what we're after in this mindfulness of the body, which is where it starts to become liberating. So what's it like to be hungry is feeling like things in your, in your belly and stuff, not just in your mind feeling a little bit bored and wanting to sort of um, put something in there. A few weeks ago I was in California and I was coming out of a store, like there were a lot of um, people living in the street there because it's warm and a lot of them were hanging around outside this Whole Foods grocery store creating a slightly scary atmosphere like they seemed a little bit tough like I thought some of them were dealing drugs and stuff so you kind of pass through with your feeling of like I'm going to going to my bike but I had this um, cookie in my hand and this guy looked up from his bench and he said chocolate chip cookie could I get a bite and I looked at him he says yeah chocolate chip cookie could I get a bite (laughs) It's, it's kind of like well, that's exactly where I was at, but I, I wasn't going to share my cookie with him. I said, no, I'm sorry, this is my cookie, and I got off and went away and ate it myself. But it's kind of, 
it's kind of, that's how our mind is. It sees something and then it's like, can I get a bite? Can I get a bite? <laughs> I want a little bit of that. Yeah, how about that? How about that good sensation? <laughs> or, um, bad, you know, bad mood, don't want to have it, squish it down, squish it down, put it down, get rid of it, pay attention to something else. Where waking up really to the way things are, which is what our practice is, means including all of these experiences a little bit more before we go into the habit pattern of reactions. It means understanding like how we're able to be attentive part of the time and sort of be in sync with our life part of the time and also what it's like when we're not there and when we get flooded with distractions or desires or aversions or judgments or plans or the story of my life or stuff that you forgot to do or some now that you're feeling very quiet your mind will bring you a big dripping chunk of guilt to chew on while you're here in case you did get bored (laughs) and to see what our life is actually like Um, that was an instruction by Krishnamurti to one of our friends Larry Rosenberg saying notice how you're actually living And what's interesting in that instruction is it's first very humble and a little bit intense, but the noticing changes how we're actually living because most of the time we're somewhat on automatic pilot. Most of the time our mind is somewhere else in the body. Most of the time, because of that, we feel separate from nature and a little bit alienated. So the kind of mental operating system that we generally run around with has sort of these flaws in it. So we could call mindfulness some kind of a bug fix or something that we're doing. Considering our body as sort of a thing to be dragged around and manipulated or um, something that takes us to good or bad places. What's interesting is that the more we tune into our own physical bodies, the more we can tune into other people, to our own feelings, to be responsive to ourself and to others and to life in a much more subtle way or based on better information than what we get when we're just kind of running our normal program. It doesn't mean that our normal program is completely impervious, like there is some incoming information through the senses and stuff, but lots of chunks of our time are occupied with kind of rumination really so that's what we're trying to shift a little bit awakening to the way that we are but also including and putting some energy into you know having a body experience an embodied life experience with compassion and curiosity reggie ray um, who's a teacher in the tibetan tradition who seems to have um, looked at quite a lot of theravadan or like our school stuff about the body um, says when something occurs in our life we tend to accept a small part of the total experience into our consciousness and block out the rest so that it remains trapped in our body in the form of unacknowledged freezing emotion sensation insight and so on held at bay by unconscious tension holding and freezing when we resist our body's experience we might increase the backlog of incompleteness and our somatic frozenness and we have to develop more and more sophisticated mental strategies to keep things at bay avoidance denial rationalization and stuff that also takes a lot of energy if anyone has noticed so to some extent as we go down into our body like um 
being tired on the first day of a retreat is partly because um, this is work, like we're in unusual postures, we're sitting for long times and stuff like that, but it's also because there's kind of a purification process in which some of the, excuse me, (coughs) the knots, like in our shoulders or places that we hold tension that we uh, don't have the habit of acknowledging or knowing um, come to the fore. And let's say for myself, my shoulders are anxiety of like, often like trying to perform or something. Somebody once said that they should, the way that they're spelled, they should be called the shooters. Like everything that you should be are, is stored in here. Now, some people have great openness in their shoulders and tightness in their jaw or their eyes. You know, like how much our eyes are usually sort of looking for things rather than letting the sights arrive. How much are mouth is sometimes gritted or like just trying to say the right thing or waiting to say something and not having a chance or you know even our body actually is sort of very literal that sometimes if there's conversations that you feel unable to have your jaw will get actually tight because somehow your mind will be wanting to say those things to that person and you'll be like unconsciously keeping them back by tightening your jaw there's new work in psychology being done about that, the sort of literalness of our body, like on the level of, um, they had an experimenter riding in the elevator up with someone who was about to be an experiment and the experimenter pretended to say like, oh, Anushka, you know, like I have too many folders, could you hold my cup of hot coffee here? Actually, that's my shark, but. (laughs) And then give it back at the end. And after the experimental subject had held a cup of warm coffee, they perceived the next person they met as much nicer than if they'd been given like a cold drink or something. It's, I mean, our body actually really is, has its own like thinking that's quite embodied already. And it moves through our mind in ways that we're not necessarily always so aware of. I remember one time I was supposed to go on a trip and um, the flight got canceled and I couldn't go. And somebody was asking me, um, like, how do you feel about that? And I'm like, I don't know, I guess it's all right. I don't care. Like, it's, I wish I could have gone or something like that. And they said, but you're actually jumping up and down. Do you think that means that you're glad you're not going? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess I'm glad I'm not going. I was completely out of touch with what I was actually feeling because I felt like I should be wanting to go and complete the task that I was supposed to be doing, you know. And actually, I had had some apprehensions about it, so I was glad to be let off the hook at the time. So as we become aware in the body, like it's not to say that, you, that we need to sort of look for certain kinds of experiences or emotional unfoldings. It's we, there's a trust that this wise body will give us you know, what we need to know at the proper time and kind of things, and that the mind, skills of mindfulness and compassion and being present will allow this particular kind of personal unfolding to take place in a helpful way. Um, Walking is also very helpful in terms of like easefulness in the mind. I have a little sentence about how walking at our own pace creates an unadulterated feedback loop between the rhythm of the body and our mental state that we cannot experience as easily in any other form. So it's widely believed among artists, philosophers, and stuff over the ages. Some of them discover that going for long walks really helps work out problems and work out their thoughts. So in a sense, the walking meditation here may also be helping your 
attention work, or like as much as you're paying deliberate attention with mindfulness, it also seems to create a space in which things can kind of work themselves out. Another recommendation for walking meditation. So the body in the present moment, just the simplicity of it to say, like not to go looking for any particular kind of like healing experience or anything like that, but to just find the experience in the present moment again and again, whether the body is officially still, which means actually is not still since it's moving all the time, it's breathing and different things are happening. Like there's a movement of energy always, the digestion is taking place and the cells are alive. So stillness is just a convention or whether it's moving in any case to stay connected in and to find the place in our own awareness where we can feel the sensations. There was a lady in the Q&A this afternoon, a woman here who was talking about feeling emotions through the body. And um, at this time in the retreat, it's kind of an instruction so that when, if you find that you're in the grip of a pretty strong mental state, which happens to almost every single person in a retreat, um, even if it's just that, you know, you're furious about what's not for lunch or what is for lunch or something like that. I mean, it really is amazing how... um, you know, your job or something like that can give you such a sense of accomplishment sometimes. It's great. And see if you feel the suffusion of happiness through your chest or if your eyes seem to light up or something like that. Just try to feel whatever emotion is happening um, as a sensation or in the place of sensations as an exploration for you. Um, Not chasing some kind of particular experience, not chasing a resolution But I guess what you could say we're chasing is a quality of wholeness or holistic attention here. The other thing that we've alluded to is being able to take refuge in the body sometimes when our mind does feel very wild or intractable or thinking really hard, you know, that you can touch uh, the ground with your feet and just ground in through your feet sometimes so that you have a sense of actual, let's call it grounding with your foot. and that at least there's something steady there, even if the mind goes wild. This sitting posture itself can be almost like being a sort of like a mountain with um, storms around it or something like that. You can take refuge in the sense of just sitting through something. We don't always get through the day with 100% grace. Like it has to be a little bit messy because we're not those people on the television programs. And sometimes you just kind of have to be with something a little bit um, unpleasant for longer than you wish you had to be. And you keep bringing your best resources of attention to it again and again, and eventually you find the trick. Usually it's admitting that it's there, and you everything that you've done to try to get rid of it is not getting rid of it. And there's a little kind of internal surrender where you have the unpleasant experience and you're not just hating on it, and then it's like okay, it's much more okay when you surrender in that way. Just like I was saying in the beginning about hiking, you're like, okay, well, so this struggle with my knee, the knee just hurts, and let me see if I can be with that, something like that, or this mood. This practice of being able to be quite simple and physical about uh, our experience is. Um, way back in the sutras, like there was an incident in the Buddha's life where his cousin tried to murder him. His cousin was kind of a bad guy and kept trying to, let's say, bad guy. 
he was ambitious, he was jealous, he was petty, and he kept trying to take over the Buddha's scene by forming splinter groups and stuff like that. He wanted to kind of be the boss. I guess he was envious or something, and he was not as enlightened as the Buddha, that's for sure. So he tried to kill him once, which is an, also a sign that if you become enlightened and liberated, your life may not become completely smooth. You might still have people who don't like you, <laughs> but it won't bother you as much <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so this cousin um, rolled a boulder down from above where the Buddha was giving a talk, and it sort of bounced out, and it didn't kill him, but this big splinter of rock came and made a wound on the Buddha's foot that was pretty severe. And um, I don't know what happened after that, but the story is that that evening, the Buddha went to this place in the forest where he was about to go to sleep, and he lay down, and he lay down in his typical posture where he sort of is very tidy, and he puts one foot on top of the other, like the unwounded foot on top of the or the wounded foot on top of the unwounded foot, and he starts going to sleep. And all these sort of spirits and deities who are like the, you know, myth, fairy tale versions of people's opinions are saying like, how can you go to sleep after you you have like this big wound and your cousin just tried to kill you and stuff? And he said, well, I have some pain in my foot, but I'm just aware of it. It doesn't really bother my mind. I just, I feel the pain, but my mind isn't suffering. So it's easy for me to go to sleep. So he had pretty much processed it all in the moment. Now he was in this other moment and kind of done with the experience that he had had in the past. He wasn't thinking about his cousin either, as I might have if my cousin had even said something slightly mean to me. You know what I mean? It's like not even try to kill you. Um, (laughs) Doesn't call or something like that. So the secret in this is the the quality of mindfulness is a kind of being fully present and connected, but also looking at um, looking at just what's happened. Like um, we've had a teacher, this Burmese doctor lady, Anushka and I went to when our teacher training, and she gives the example of like you ask me for an apple, and I go to the fridge and get one, and you grab it, and it has this big rotten spot in it, and it's like. What happens in your mind when I give you an apple with a rotten spot? It's like different people will have different reactions. You'll be either like, why do you always buy those goddamn apples on sale? Or or, why do you give it to me? This is what I deserve. Or you're so mean or something like that. It's not just an apple with a rotten spot. Does that make sense? Like you see what our minds are constantly doing and engaged in and making our lives kind of more difficult many times. Um, by lack of really understanding uh, what's going on. So we were meditating today and um, there was an instruction about what happens when a little thing comes out from between your teeth in the sitting practice. And I had a thought of like, I certainly hope nothing comes out from my teeth. (laughs) We're like, ew, right? So when we know the body as it is, we start to be able to see the body as it is and start to feel the difference between the sensation or the reality and the reaction. That's considered healthy to look at it with curiosity and say, what's that like and what's the actuality? Um, Rather than galloping off into a huge storm of reactivity afterwards. In the Buddhist teaching, this is called the second arrow. It's like you can be shot with one arrow which is just the original experience. And then the second arrow is everything that your mind does that's painful to go along with it. So 
like when your lab test comes back and it's a result that you didn't want, you know, how much does your mind go with that? How often do you see it coming back? And how do you respond to what the mind is doing? That's the second piece. It's not just blaming yourself for having a mind that's worried. It's like when those thoughts and feelings are there, how do you receive those? How do you relate to those? Actually, they're just thoughts. It's not horrible that we're thinking them, um, but if we can be mindful and compassionate with the processness of our experience, our thoughts can come to seem a little bit less kind of daunting. And eventually we can sort of say, well, the lab test said I have a stage two melanoma, but it's not actually that bad. And we don't know, and I've been told that there's nothing else to be done, so. Um, that's all it says, and there's an unknown after that. Like, don't fill it up with a known of like, oh my God, you know, like that. So we can acknowledge the reactivity when it's there or the wildness of the mind, but often we can move by choice just to feel the body sensation, and it's a relief. Jean-Anne was talking about that too, about how the stuff that our mind does can't always be solved on the level of the mind by sinking into the body where the sensations are just sensations. They're not building anything. They happen just once. They appear and disappear. Maybe they're a signal that our body wants us to know. Like um, if there's really persistent numbness or pain in your leg, then you don't just say this is a sensation. You also act on it. But in general, if you just move by choice into the body, and feel uh, with a sort of dignity and respect and full mindfulness and care the sensations that are going on there, it's quite soothing, it can be. And we have the chance to move below the level of our personal narrative into some of the really interesting territory of Buddhist practice where it becomes uh, rather more liberating in a sense by starting to see that all of life is just a process, it comes and goes. It's impermanent. It's always changing. There's no thing that's the body. It's actually a lot of different processes. Things are all moving a little bit too quickly to become things. Our mind is the one that creates stuff like an apple, you know. Um, But even the apple is moving, coming and going, or being eaten, or rotting, or growing, or something like that. There's no such thing as an apple, in a sense. From the experiential level, when that gets into your bones, then it's much harder to get stuck on stuff because you feel the flowingness of things more. Like one thing that's pretty easy to tune into is the sense that everything is happening only one time. Like you guys will never hear this talk again. It's one of the closest Buddhist insights to access with our regular mind, that quality of impermanence. And it's very direct in the body because the body is, the sensations are only happening right now. They're not happening any other time. So automatically, by tuning into sensations, you're kind of hooking to the present moment, to what's now. And we could talk about how it's more real and true than our thoughts. Like, our thoughts might be imagining, like, what our family is doing at home, and we don't know really what they're doing. We might have a pretty good sense of it, but we can't really see them. But um, our mind sort of creates this fabrication, like a replica of reality and we work with it because it's helpful in predicting things and you know being able to remember and connect remember past experiences and what happened and you know like when you were a baby you didn't know how to walk or you didn't know that a ball was a toy and you had to like put it in your mouth and 
sit on it before you figured out that it would bounce and stuff. And now it's a lot more efficient if we see a ball and we say, well, there's a ball, that's a toy, or it's like a baseball or a football. You know, we have different understandings that are helpful. But in that sense, we're putting things into a category where they're not changing and we're not in touch with what is changing. So this present moment awareness allows us to do that. So what the Buddha said in terms of the body was the first thing to do was you establish this quality of mindfulness and then you go to a quiet place and you sit down under a tree or something and you attend to your breath. So we've done that already, right? And that's an instruction that you can keep for the rest of your life. Then the next thing we notice um, in his instruction in this uh, sutra or instructional text is you notice the body moving in a continuous way. So he said when you're going forward and returning, one is clearly knowing of what one's doing. When looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending the limbs, when defecating and urinating, he made sure to put that in, like to make sure that we do not leave out any part of our activities. When walking, sitting, eating, or falling asleep, one is acts clearly knowing. So that's an instruction that you also have, is to notice the body when it's moving around this place and that moving around thing is going to be one of the most useful to you when you go home from here because we're constantly moving around. Like I had my teeth cleaned the other day and the dental assistant told me she used to wear one of those monitors and she took something like 8,000 steps or she was like way ahead of how her minimum number of steps just by going and getting the instruments from the tray and coming back and stuff. The next thing that we're supposed to notice is the body, be aware of the body when it's in its postures of sitting, standing, walking, lying down, and etc. It's meant to stand for every posture in between. So and you've done plenty of that as noticing the body in its postures. And then there are two more um, pieces of this practice that he suggested that we'll be presenting in the coming days. I'm going to take another 10 minutes or so beyond the end of the 45-minute talk if everyone agrees to describe those. From the feet up to the head and from the hair down to the feet, you notice the components, like the physical components of the body. And there's a famous list called the 32 parts that we don't have to memorize or know, but just in general, I'm going to read it so that you can track that you have an anatomical body also. So you have hair on, we have hair on our head, most of us, hair on our body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, and there's this thing called the mesentery, which is what a lot of your internal organs are attached to, contents in your stomach, feces, bile, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spit, snot, oil of the joints, urine, etc. Nice, huh? Something else that we mostly try not to pay attention to, some of this. So that's a way of just acknowledging the anatomical 
nature of the body, of our embodiment, which is also real for each person. It's not part of the experiential body, but it's something about sort of being a being. Like, you think this is my little shark USB thing. It, sharks and animals have different shapes of bodies, but a lot of them have similar internal organs to us. It's the animal part of us. And to try to have an inclusive quality about that real nature of our body, not to push it away or say that it's revolting, but to really say this is kind of what it is and to work a little bit through what our attitudes are. And in the instructions, the Buddha suggests that when we want to sort of look inwardly and get a sense of these organs and structures and stuff, that we, he compares it to being a bag of different kinds of vegetables and beans and rice and stuff. So he's obviously trying to encourage us not to think of it as this loathsome thing, but in a little bit like of a detached way. It's like as if it were a bag of red rice and hill rice and beans and peas and millet, that our body contains a lot of different things. So that's something that you can practice with if you're interested to um, just generally acknowledge that. We'll offer it in a simplified form as skin, flesh, and bones as a practice can be very interesting. It brings the attention really deep inside, which helps us work with that brain structure that helps empathy and emotional regulation and everything to start being aware of our kind of internal body. And feeling like our development is to become kind and accepting and realistic about this body, what it is, whatever shape it's in, whatever size it has. It's just hair and skin and bones and stuff. It's like there's something about it that's kind of very soothing. Um, You'll see as we practice that as a living operational system. It's not just pictures in an anatomical chart either. It's thinking about how all these things function together to support our life. The other effect of that practice is that um, it breaks up our concept of the body a little bit like as we go through it and we see that there's a lot going on in there and it's a system that all works together rather than just this thing. Like when I think about my husband, he's David who gets up at 1030. He's much more than that. But, you know, I'm just using this as an an illustration. Our body, that's my body. My idea of it may have a lot to do with like what it weighed when I stepped on the scale this morning or whether it's itchy or something like that. I don't have a sense of all the components that are functioning together to make it work. Or I think of Anushka just being Anushka there with a label of Anushka, but there's a lot more than just a label to this person. Even though I've known her for years, there's so many things that I don't know. So any of us is not just one thing. We're actually many things, as is our body, so it's a systematic thing. The second thing, um, type of investigation that the Buddha suggested, um, which I won't go into in depth, is parsing it into the natural elements of earth, water, fire, and air, which is the aspects of the body that are solid or mineral, um, the water that's in it, or different kinds of experiences that are compared to water, like flowing things. Um, The element of temperature, when it's hot or it's cold, or just the natural body warmth. Um, And the air element, which is both considered to be like the air that's moving all through our system, and also a certain quality of movement or tingling or stiffness. Now, you won't have to memorize all of this, but 
it's saying that our body really is part of nature, like we belong to the earth, and it's happening by itself with no I necessarily involved in most of it. This place where we tend to live in our thoughts and feelings is not what our body is up to, it, uh, kind of at these deeper levels. So we're encouraging you to stay in this area of the bare experience that happens on its own and to let go a little bit of the sense of needing to control your experience through meditation because it's much more like trying to take the position of an observer. My friend Maria, who was a meditator in Newburyport one time, she had this urge to lie on a picnic table during the walking meditation. She was looking up at the sky, not something that you'll do in this season. But she said um, she had an experience of seeing the clouds and she was just all the movements of her physical sensations and the movements of the clouds and what she was seeing was this kind of texture of, you couldn't say exactly oneness, but it was like she was part of it all. And I said, well, how did that happen? How did you get into that? And she said, somehow I wasn't looking for anything. You know, so there's something about directing our attention that that can make it feel like we're looking for something to happen in a particular way. It's not exactly like that. It's not like the... The goal is really to arrive at finding the sensations themselves and then letting them roll a little bit. So I think you kind of can understand that what what that's like and we'll be guiding that in the coming days. But it's just to give you a sense of the orientation of this practice of being aware through the body. And then the other frameworks are things that we don't need to deal with today. I'll close with a poem by um, Czechlaw Milos, where um, he's, it's called Love, and he says, Love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things, for you're only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. Then he or she wants to use himself and things, so they stand in the glow of ripeness. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. So thank you for your attention, and I hope that some of this was helpful for you or will be as the retreat unfurls. Let's sit quietly just for a minute and soak it in or let it go, whatever. So may we know that arriving in our bodies is like the ultimate pilgrimage. May we understand the nature of life through the experience of being embodied. May we know 
how to hold and understand the movements of body and mind in a compassionate and wise way. Thank you.